that trusted news initiative started by the BBC, Reuters, Agence France Presse, right? Um, um, the New York Times, the Washington Post, they all got together and said, medical misinformation is bad. We're going to shut this down and we're only going to listen one voice. But if you do that and it's captured and you're getting bad advice from that one voice, boy, have you made a colossal error. And I got to tell you, the history books will talk about what I just said. I'm Betsy Ashton. I'm the creative director of the FLCCC, and I'm here tonight with doctors Paul Merrick and Pierre Corey, and with a member of our staff that you haven't met before, our vice president of public relations, Joyce Kamen, who edited the video that you just saw. She's also the person who got those messages from YouTube, as well as one from Vimeo and one from LinkedIn, claiming that the information that our doctors, our expert clinicians, uh, as well as the other doctors and the patients on those videos were telling you about their observations. They were saying that this is misinformation, misinformation that could harm you, misinformation that needs to be taken down, that they took down. But is it? Or is it true observational data? information needed for healthy scientific debate. I mean, that's what science is. It's debate as new information comes out. And then in the end, the truth wins, right? That's what it's supposed to be. Well, tonight we are digging into the data. We're searching for the scientific truth versus misinformation to see who is spreading it and what really holds up. And for the next 45 minutes to an hour, we're gonna be talking about that, digging into the news stories about COVID-19 prevention and treatment that you're hearing everywhere else and answering questions about that and answering questions also that you put into the Q&A down below for the doctors. So let's get started. Uh, doctors, Joyce, are you ready, Pierre? Uh, yes, <laughs> I unmuted. I'm there. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. So thanks, thanks for the introduction. Um, before we get to Joyce, I just wanted to talk about uh, the new FLCC protocol, which is that Paul and I wear matching shirts whenever we appear publicly. <laughs> so uh, we just have to increase our wardrobe. Um, and then really quick before we get to Joyce, I'm going to start with a little levity here, Joyce, because you have some really rough stuff to talk about. And so maybe I can bring a smile to people's faces. But this protocol was developed um, by one of our new additions to our team, um, uh, Christina Moros, who's a nurse anesthetist and kind of does a lot of stuff for us. And one of the things she is, is she's apparently our uh, stylist, Paul, and she had a problem with our wardrobe. She didn't think it, she didn't think it was up to snuff. So she wanted us to kick it up a notch. And so she recommended that we get nicer shirts. Um, I personally think my shirts were fine. I think Paul needed the help and I'm just getting dragged along with it. So maybe in the chat, you can vote whether you think our wardrobes are cool. Um, the other thing that I think you need to vote on, and I'm just going to share my screen here. Uh, give me one second. Is the, uh, is this idea that, so this is uh, also what Paul got. So if you guys don't know this, Paul's, Paul's nickname is actually SpongeBob. 
um, and we call him Bob for short. Um, but SpongeBob got a new pair of kicks uh, uh, the other day from Christina. And then Christina again tried to drag me along and she told me to go buy these. I am not going to buy those. You can vote in the chat whether you think I should wear this, but I'm not looking like a 16-year-old skateboarder when I leave the house. So anyway, uh, that's uh, some of the new FLCCC uh, uh, clothing that uh, that's not going to happen. So anyway, um, with that, I'm going to uh, we'll go over to Joyce, and Joyce is going to talk to us about uh, yeah, just some really rough stuff happening in the world. Like a lot of it is rough, and then uh, and then we'll go back to Q and A with me and Paul. Thanks. Yeah. Um, by the way, I didn't get the gray shirt memo, obviously. So, you know, what do you think? Guys? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We no, we're going to work on that. We're going to expand out the protocol. Okay, okay. So, um, yeah, so what I want to talk about is um, in my role as uh, vice president of uh, public affairs and public relations for the FLCCC, um, I get, I'm on the receiving end of all of the um, notices that we get that we have been silenced, we have been censored. And our doctors have been saying for a very long time that that action alone is costing untold lives uh, to be unnecessarily lost. Um, for those of you who have followed us and understand that um, that is a scientific truth. So what I'd like to do is uh, share my screen and go through just a couple of numbers for you so you can see what was happening to us. Now, this is not only happening to us, it's ha happening to many other groups who, uh, who are trying to get the word out about early therapeutics uh, that can work. And it's especially important now with the rise in the uh, case counts, hospitalizations, and even deaths around the world from COVID-19. Um, and the doctors will talk to you a little bit about that in just a moment. So let me just share my screen. We're gonna go through censorship by the numbers. What have we experienced? We can only talk from, from our experience. What have we experienced? And um, just to let you know the extent of what is happening. So as many of you know, we are on Facebook, we are on Twitter, we are on YouTube, we are on Vimeo. On Facebook, we have now uh, three offenses. Um, and our, um, our next defense, we were informed that we will be completely deplatformed. So if you notice, and if you follow us on social media, you'll see we are being extra, extra, extra careful. Uh, now that we know that uh, we, we always feel like we have a target on our backs because you know we, the unmentionable word of ivermectin is uh, forbidden in a lot of places. It's forbidden in print, it's, forget, it's forbidden if we talk about it, um, so we refer to it as the I word or IBM or something that um, won't get us taken down. Uh, we've opened up, by the way, a Telegram account and an uh, account on Odyssey, where uh, that's the video account where we will not get uh, censored. So uh, we're encouraging all of you to go to Telegram and Odyssey and uh, to find us there. Um, anyway, three offenses on Facebook. Next one, we're out. We had a one-week lockout on Twitter. The offending uh, tweet was that we did a price comparison um, and an efficacy comparison between ivermectin and another uh, designer therapeutic, which um, is extremely expensive and is given routinely in hospitals, I believe here in the US and other countries as well. And that earned us a week in timeout on Twitter. On YouTube, we have had 11 videos removed 
um, we've had a channel lockout um, of our weekly update channel until October, meaning we can't do anything on our YouTube account. But uh, again, you're going to find, uh, we're uploading them as quickly as we can. We're going to find those, you're going to find all of those eventually on our Odyssey channel. Uh, so just Google, uh, or just go into Odyssey and, and search for Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. Uh, on Vimeo, we've had one video removed. Uh, we were surprised at that. We have an account manager who we work with there and had some pretty good assurance that they understood who we were and what we did. Uh, yet still, we had a video removed. We were also on LinkedIn. If you'll notice, we are no longer on LinkedIn. We were completely deplatformed. Now, everything that we put on Twitter and on Facebook and our other social media, um, we repeat so that everyone watching the different social media channels can see us everywhere. Um, we don't know what the offending uh, post was on LinkedIn, but we got a notice that our account was uh, taken off. We were deplatformed. Numerous appeals have gone nowhere. We get the we get it back, and they say, "Well, after reconsidering, we have decided that you did violate uh, community standards, and you did traffic in medical misinformation. So you will not be getting back on our platform." Uh, on Medium, um, it was my own, actually it's my own channel on Medium, but I write a lot about our work here and our mission here. Uh, I did a story on the, called the biggest lie um, about what is happening uh, to ivermectin and other early therapeutics. And they not only, they, they, didn't, they didn't even just take down that one. I have 65 essays on Medium, most of them about the FLCCC, uh, completely deplatformed, radio silence on appeals, didn't even get an answer. Um, and this is interesting on PR Web and PR Newswire. PR Web and PR Newswire are public, um, are, are press release distribution channels. So a lot of times you'll read news um, everywhere, electronically, on print things and so forth that are distributed by these agencies, these companies, PR Web and PR Newswire. You send them your press release and they get, literally get it out to the world. Um, and we were told last time we uploaded to PR Web and PR Newswire that we were no longer welcome as customers because, uh, and I had a talk with the managing editor there, and the managing editor said, well, you know, we cannot print or, or distribute anything that is not sanctioned by official public health agencies. So if it is not blessed by the CDC, the NIH, the FDA, um, or the WHO, they will not, no longer, they were working with them for a long time, but they said they will no longer work with us. So we were banned off of PR web and PR newswire. Uh, to me, that's just next level censorship. Um, I don't know what you think, but I think it is. Okay, here is the summary of the offensive content. We put up a video about how the FLCCC came together to form this group. That was taken down. We posted news of lives saved using ivermectin, gone. We posted uh, stories and uh, videos of physicians sharing their successes using ivermectin in their practices, gone. 
We posted about the impacts on humanity if ivermectin is not globally adopted. Again, that was gone too. Additionally, we posted about the scientific evidence that mountainous evidence demonstrating ivermectin's ability to prevent and treat COVID-19. That's out. And again, as I referenced earlier, the cost and efficacy comparisons between ivermectin and some of the designer drugs, uh, that was out too. So what does this all mean for humanity? It has, it has impacts. It has global impacts. Scientific censorship, which should always, science should always be open for debate, open for discussion. That's the way science works. Now it is effectively being shut down and it has global impacts. So at this point, I'm going to ask for uh, Paul and Pierre to come back, Dr. Corey, Dr. Merrick to come back and talk to us about what those impacts might be. Yeah, uh, well, thanks for that, Joyce. It's, um, you know, I'm looking at the chat a little bit and, you know, people are just, uh, I, I mean, they've had it. I mean, this is just, um, you know, Paul talks about this really well. I mean, science is, it's about debate. It's about trying to discern the truth and you need to discuss. And so to, to, to really insert yourself in discussion is, is, is crazy. Um, and, and, you know, the, you know, maybe I just use too much common sense, but like, you know, this idea that medical misinformation is harm, so harmful, so harmful, like how many people are dying from medical misinformation? Like, yeah, there's a couple of stories you see in the news of some like probably impaired individuals who did something really stupid. Um, but I think that's a handful. Um, now, people are totally free to do a lot of stupid things that cause harm to themselves. And many of them do it with alarming regularity. And so, um, you know, I, I just don't understand the harm that, that, that requires such censorship. And, and when you ask the question, maybe there's something else driving the censorship, maybe it's not our welfare, um, then it gets really ominous, right? Because they're pretending they're protecting us and we need protection. So the average grown in, you know, individual in society, you know, is going to be so harmed by getting a post about a drug that's showing efficacy. Um, even if it's wrong, they can use their judgment. They can do a little research. I don't think anyone ever says when someone says, you know, this works, I don't know that everybody blindly says, oh, they said it worked, so I'm going to take it. There's some do, but again, I don't understand why this is a harm that's out of proportion to the other thing, the other dumb things that people do and the other poor judgments that they have. And yeah, so we make, a, we make appeals to every, uh, every time we're taken down, we make an appeal to the platform. Um, and I always remind them that, first of all, the onus is not on us. The onus is on them to... Uh, do enough due diligence to, to learn who is, who is trafficking in true misinformation. And I remind them that this group was formed by five of the most highly published, world-renowned, highly respected physicians in this specialty. I can't say that emphatically enough. I mean, these are physicians who, uh, the case in point, present company, Joyce, add the fact that we're on the ground. 
we're on the ground on the front lines where they, they you know we, we don't look to the rear guard to ask them how to have, what to do up front like to learn about what's going on on front it's crazy exactly. we're supposed to feed the information backwards not forwards totally and and so i tell them i said these these doctors collectively have authored a, a 2000 papers together and uh our esteemed Dr. Merrick over here is the most highly published critical care intensivist in the world. And so you're talking about some of America's most highly respected physicians and we are getting shut down. It makes absolutely no sense at all. And, uh, you know, this is, uh, this has become a, a new crisis because of this new surge. If people knew that as you said, both Dr. Merrick and Dr. Corey, that COVID is a treatable disease. That message is not getting out because we are being silenced. The science is being silenced. The voices of America's most highly respected clinicians are being silenced. And Joyce, what is most disturbing to me and to Pierre is that, I mean, you know, we interested in the truth the truth as best we can can portray the truth. That's what we do. We, we scientists and researchers and we being silenced, yet there are people out there who promoting misinformation and disinformation, which we'll talk about, and yet they go uncensored. So it's very selective censoring. We basically, the truth is being censored. The absolute truth will be, we only speak the truth. And trust is based on the truth. It begins with the truth and ends with the truth. And our goal is to tell the truth. We have no reason not to, and we being silenced. Yet those out there who are really perpetuating disinformation and misinformation seem to have a free tongue. It's completely upside down world. And and here's the thing, Joyce. Like in your in your um presentation tonight you know and like in that video you wrote and you're correct you know youtube doesn't want us to know these things and that's technically correct but let's go one step further because it's youtube's policy and this is where it's just crazy town so youtube's policy i believe the stated policy or what's behind the stated policy is that if it ain't coming from the who it ain't allowed on the platform, right? So basically what they're saying is that in a pandemic, we find it so critical that we only listen to one voice. Now, I've been saying for months, what happens if that voice, now I don't want to say is Hitler, but let's say, let's use the analogy, what happens if that voice is captured by financially motivated, motivated financial interests whose public health is not the main goal and, and who have an absurd idea of what pandemic policy should be, which is this monolithic vaccination alone, which is harming people in the sense that, you know, it, it deprives all those who can't get vaccines. And it also assumes that the vaccines are going to have long lasting efficacy and that the vaccines are safe. Now, I'm not going to comment on all those things, but those are all things that we don't know yet. We don't truly know all those answers yet. And so why are you going all in on one? So we're literally listening to one voice with one policy. That's and, exactly. and, 
And it's, it's that, it, it, and that's what, so YouTube made that decision and it's not just YouTube, right? It's that trusted news initiative started by the BBC, Reuters, Agence France Presse, right? Um, um, the New York Times, the Washington Post, they all got together and said, medical misinformation is bad. We're going to shut this down and we're only going to listen one voice. But if you do that and it's captured and you're getting bad advice from that one voice, Boy, have you made a colossal error. And I got to tell you, the history books will talk about what I just said. The history books are going to say that the world went mad. They lost their effing minds by by making that decision. Yeah, medical misinformation is bad. I would agree. But silencing science is deadly. That's all. It's it's clear that it's deadly. And, And listening only to captured agencies that are suffering from regulatory capture, where literally all the little bureaucrats, all the little desk jockey doctors with the little, you know, pencils, um, you know, all of them are listening to pharmaceutical companies and the pharmaceutical companies are telling them, you got to do this, you got to do this. And they all listen. And so you're, you're, you're literally listening to captured bureaucrats. And, and that's where we're getting our policy from. And like you pointed out, like you're, you're not listening to doctors like us. And Paul and I and everyone in the group, that's all we've been trying to do is figure out COVID and figure out what works and what, what you know, how to treat it. And, and that's the whole basis of our, our organization. Um, and Paul likes to remind us of this because sometimes we get perceived as this ivermectin organization. It's not. We are trying to figure out how best to treat COVID in all its phases. It just so happens that ivermectin appears in all of those treatment protocols. Um, but there's a lot of other stuff, too. We have a lot of other approaches. We're learning about new approaches every day. And so it's, you know, we're just trying to figure out a treat both. And, and I got to tell you, there's a good part of the world that uh, I think if they got sick, they'd want to be treated by the FLCCC. And, and, and I think more should hear about our work. And it's a shame that we can't get that information to more people. Because, boy, if we put in the effort, man, we, we've done the work that these guys, these, these agencies did not. You think they're doing the stuff that we're doing, which is having an open mind, listening to everything, looking at the totality of the data around drugs, you know, not just waiting for these huge randomized controlled trials. It's, it's absurd. It's just absurd the way they're practicing medicine. Absolutely. Now you got me all riled up. That's <laughs> good. It's good. <laughs> This is worth getting riled up for because people last week uh, we had on uh, Dr. Weinstein, uh, Brett Weinstein, and he said, you know, at this point it has gotten so insane. And I'll use his word. He said, it is time for mutiny. Now we can think about that in a number of different ways. It starts with not accepting the company line. It starts with thinking for yourself. I'm speaking especially now to practicing physicians. Who, who absolutely slay patients who come in and say, I want to get ivermectin because I've yeah, read the studies, whatever. And they tell patients, are you crazy? There's no way. That's an antiparasitic drug and it's going to do this. It's going to do that. Like you said in, in, in the video, it's safer than an aspirin. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, here's another thought I had earlier. So like, um, and I don't want to sound egotistical, but Paul and I, we get these really glowing um, emails. You know, people say, you know, we're heroes and and, you know, that, you know, just they're really proud of what we're doing and our achievements. And to be honest, it's not that I'm not impressed. It doesn't make me feel good. But I'm like literally like 
what am I getting called a hero for? For like going to work and doing my job? Like for just being a, like, I'm just like making, I'm using common sense. <laughs> like, like I'm a hero for using, well, it's not so common, I guess, Paul, right? Um, but literally, I, I, I don't know. I, it, it's, I mean, we're doing what we've always done and we're just doing the same thing in a pandemic and, and suddenly we rise out as some sort of unique uh, physician. I don't know. I think the, the biggest tragedy is that we're promoting the truth. What we're telling is the truth, the unadulterated truth. Um, we, as you say, I mean, we have an enormous background in clinical medicine. We've read thousands of papers, thousands of scientific papers. We, we're doing our best to assimilate the data and provide the best information. And yet I've been accused of promoting medical misinformation. It's, it's an outrage. It's truly an outrage. It is, it is an outrage. And uh, not only, so, so you know, you can talk about evidence and a lot of people say, well, you know, this study is small and that study is small and, you know, you need more, you need more trials. But then when you look at a graph, uh, those of you who belong to Twitter, go and look up Juan Chimier's graph on, um, it's actually on our Telegram also, on Mexico you see where Mexico had countrywide uh, program of widespread distribution of ivermectin. And the case counts went from here to here. And coincidence? Nah. Yeah, that coincidence keeps happening everywhere where you can time, when you can time and identify rollouts, either from public health ministries um, or announcements in the newspaper in some instances, <clears throat> When you can time the the rollout and the the adoption, um, you know, watch me. That's his expertise. He just sees this reproducible pattern everywhere. Everything is timed to those rollouts. Yeah. Um, you know, the other the other absurdity, right? So, <clears throat> and I think I've talked about it on prior webinars, but you know. This idea of regulatory capture and the idea that we're not getting good guidance from the agencies because they literally are captured and they're completely all in on one policy. Okay, so we all know that March 31st, their latest update to their living guideline for the treatment of COVID, right, had a section on ivermectin. And it was it was criminal. It was not truth. It was actually a distortion of the truth. It was a dismissal of the truth. They threw out trials. They looked at only a subset. And they, you could see like from first sentence to the last that they had one goal with the ivermectin section, which is to arrive at a non-recommendation. And they succeeded if you're an uneducated reader of that document. Okay. The underlying research, all of the trials gathered was by a guy named Dr. Andy Hill, which I'm sure a lot of our followers have heard of him, right? He's a longtime researcher for major international agencies. He's considered highly credible, highly expert. Um, he did a lot of work around hepatitis C and HIV drugs and getting them approved and, and utilized across the world. So he, he has treated, or he has been, um, you know, he has been, uh, He's played an important role in, in treating other, uh, you know, viral scourges around the world. Okay. That document, and because we know Andy Hill, we've seen his work, and we were aware of his work until his masters told him to stop sharing it with us. So he literally, you know, went dark. He was speaking, <clears throat> he was speaking publicly in the early parts of this year when he was sitting on 18 randomized control trials in public speeches. 
He was giving his opinion as a veteran researcher, which is he was saying to the world, get ready, stock up, you need to deploy. Okay, so we know how Andy feels when he's given freedom to share his uh, opinions. So he got muzzled. All right. They said, no, 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 no more public speeches, no more talking, no more tweets. And you can see his Twitter uh, history. It stopped. There was no tweets for months. Okay, so he gets muzzled. Okay. Then we know his contract with the WHO ended. It ended right around that, actually, that same day that they, uh, they, they put out uh, their evidence. And I know that he was sitting on around 22 trials at that time. That document only included 16. And believe me, they're not going to update that document anytime soon. Okay, here's the point of my story is that he leaves the WHO and uh, a really important uh, philanthropic organization called the Rainwater Foundation, they know how critical, and they're really trying to make a difference in COVID. They supported his team and his work to continue their meta-analysis. And I've talked about their meta-analysis. So here he is outside the WHO on his own, supported by philanthropy. And what does he publish? He publishes a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials, 24 of them. Well, now 23, because you got to take out El Gazar. Paul, we'll talk about that one. Um, but it shows massive reductions in mortality, in time to clinical recovery, in time to viral clearance. And the viral clearance, he demonstrates, is in a dose-dependent fashion, which the uh, WHO clearly took pains to not mention. They know this guy found dose dependency and they purposely omitted it from that document. Those are criminal actions. And so you have the W, you have, you have YouTube and all of these entities that are literally saying, we are going to listen to the, you know, this, like Paul calls it, what do you call them? Uh, the gods of science and knowledge, Paul, we're going to listen to the gods of science and knowledge. Uh, and, and in their unfettered uh, and, and no conflict of interest uh, advice. And, and you can see what happens to that advice when it leaves the WHO. So you have Andy Hill, who's literally showing, you know, now what's really sad about the Andy Hill story, what's absurd is that he's still working for his masters because I think he still wants to become employed by them because he's giving public statements that the randomized control trial should continue. That is an absurd statement that is not data driven at all. That That is that is a political statement of his, and I, and I have to call him out for that. And I absolutely have to call him out on that. I cannot believe he's telling the world that they need more placebo-controlled trials when he just publishes a meta-analysis of 24 trials. Are you kidding me? That's like, insane. He knew, he knew it back when because he said, get ready. He was already saying it back then, and he gets, he gets easy up to – that was when he had 2,100 patients in those trials. Now he has 3,300 patients. You, you literally have a collection of randomized control trials, 3,300 patients. And let's just talk about what the damn truth is, right? So the other parts of the truth is that you also have 30 observational control trials. When you count all the patients in all of these trials, observational randomized, you're up to like 15,000, I think, maybe even higher now. 15,000 patients in 60 controlled trials. There's maybe one or two negative trials. All of them are positive. When you do meta-analyses on all of them, you find these unbelievably profound outcomes. And so, so it's not just the truth. It's the whopping truth, Paul. It's like, you know, and what people say is, oh, we don't trust observational control trials. We believe they're not credible. That's BS. We know from evidence-based medicine, observational control trials and randomized control trials, on average, 
find the same conclusion unless they're designed differently. And I'll tell you, one of the thing, one of the big design flaws of randomized controlled trials, and that it's happening over and over again, is the delay to therapy. They're literally studying therapies where they have criteria that you have to meet, which allows them to be the father in the disease. Then you have to identify, consent, randomize, and deliver the medicine. These are all crazy delays, which don't marry the real world. And you're seeing randomized controlled trials fail. And one of the most common reasons why a randomized controlled trial will fail is because it's delayed therapy. So they're literally studying like, a fake world. Like they're literally studying and reporting on something that doesn't reflect how it really is. And, and it's, it's another absurdity, but yet randomized controlled trials is all that we want to listen to. I mean, this isn't like that sophisticated. My arguments are not sophisticated. Well, I'm a simple guy. I just like to say simple yeah. truths. You get the big com complex ones. And Pierre, maybe we should talk about the misinformation that's being perpetuated. Disinformation. Yeah. The other side does disinformation. We do misinformation. Yeah. No, I mean, so, you know, we can we can talk about this, this thing going around how unsafe ivermectin is. Oh, know? yeah. Can you talk about that for us? Yeah. So, um, hey, basically, could we pull up my slides? So... You know, we, need, we need to talk about the safety of ivermectin uh, because obviously, you know, people are doubting that this is a safe drug, which is completely and utterly absurd. Next one. So, you know, we start, <laughs> we start off with the FDA who basically said that this is a drug which should be used for horses, that it's not safe for humans, and it's associated with a high risk of hepatic injury which we'll come to because it's completely bogus. So there is a physician in South Africa who's promoting this idea that ivermectin causes liver failure and that he's, he has this whole group of patients who have liver failure. He furthermore says that ivermectin is not safe for humans. Ivermectin is not safe for humans. So you know what? Why don't we look at the safety data? You know, all these people you know, promoting misinformation. And of course, Merck, you know, let's not forget Merck, who actually invented the drug, promoted the drug, distributed the drug to 3.7 you know, billion doses. And they, they are concerned about a lack of safety of the drug, um, which is completely absurd. Next slide. So let's look at the safety of the drug. So this is a review which looks at 25 years of clinical experience with ivermectin. The only caution is it cannot be used in collie dogs. So if you're a collie dog, you out of luck just because they have an impaired blood-brain barrier. Negligible adverse reactions in humans. Can I say that again? Negligible adverse reactions in humans has a robust safety profile. It can be used in children as young as six months of age. The most severe reactions are allergic reactions, which is really due to the death of the microfilaria and the parasites. Very, very, very rarely when you have this parasitic disease called lower lower, can you get encephalopathy. The only cautions are pregnancy and lactation. Next slide. So this well, those are cautions, right? I mean, yeah, they, they can't recommend it routinely, but that would be a case-based decision, especially if you're ill. Yeah. Now, this is the most outstanding report by this uh, physician pharmacist PhD 
who is a fellow of the U.S. Academy of Toxicology Sciences. He did an outstanding extensive review of ivermectin from over 500 articles and sources. And basically what he said that the, that the adverse effects are very infrequent and are mild to moderate, consisting of dizziness, tingling, tremor, sleepiness. More severe neurological complications are possible, but rare, rare. So this complete fabrication of, of ivermectin causing liver failure is a fantasy. It does not happen. We've done extensive literature review, 3.7 billion doses. That's with a B, billion doses have been prescribed. We are aware of one or two cases of possible hepatitis, one or two possible. So indeed, this is lying. This is misinformation. This is dangerous propagation of information which is false. Yet the newspapers and the major media outlets do not censor this completely false fabricated data. So what, you, what they need to do is actually check the data themselves. And this is the truth. We have no reason not to tell the truth. Next slide. So should we look at the, um, this is from the WHO's Vigi Access database, which reports adverse effects and deaths over the last 25 years. If you look at ivermectin, since 1992, they report 16 deaths and 4,000 adverse events. It so happens that all the 16 deaths were due to the parasite, death due to parasites. So these were people who got ivermectin for overwhelming parasitic infection. Now, just to put it into context, we're not going to say anything more. We look at COVID-19 vaccines in two months or three months, 8,000 deaths. So how can, you, how can you say that ivermectin is an unsafe drug? That's completely false. It's a lie and it's very evil. Uh. Next slide. So just to carry on, you know, and we're not, I'm not gonna belabor the point in terms of the deaths from COVID-19 vaccines. As I said, we are unaware of any severe adverse events due to ivermectin. However, to date, there are almost 3, 000, 3 million adverse events with um, the vaccines and close to 40,000 reported deaths. So you know what we do need is the truth. We do not need people fabricating the truth, lying and providing misinformation. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Um, you know, uh, of all the absurdities, right? So Merck's statement, which was just so, like I keep saying, not subtle. <clears throat> um, you know, we have to remind ourselves that the chief, to, to show how captured the WHO is, right? The chief scientist, right? Uh, Swubamanathan, I can't remember how to say her last name, but um, she literally tweeted about, Merck, when she said, hey, to, when she told India not to use ivermectin, um, she literally used the Merck signal in her tweet. The chief scientist referencing a pharmaceutical company in her advice to India. And the pharmaceutical I mean, company has an interest in the failure of ivermectin, even though 
Merck was the developer of ivermectin, held the patent until 1996, and now is saying, and, and gave it to almost 4 billion people, it, it, the ivermectin is just, a, it's a workhorse of a drug and they know it. And they, there's even some similarities between yeah. their they, they don't make money. They don't make money off it. But here's yeah. the thing, like Brett does this really well, Brett Weinstein, right? So he talks about these anomalies and, and irregularities and really what I call the tell, like the tell that someone's lying. So the tell for me is when in the ivermectin, there's a lot of tells in that ivermectin uh, guideline in the WHO, but one of them is where they literally spend time questioning the safety of ivermectin. Meanwhile, in their guideline documents for scabies and strongloidiasis that they recommend across the world, it literally says billions of doses have been administered side effects are minor and transient. So they literally they're, they're caught they're, they're in their own document. I mean, it's not subtle what they're doing. Right. And then here's another one from a friend of mine who's taught me a lot about Ivermectin. He's actually a vet. He just texted me and he, this is another absurdity. He, when you look at the FDA website, what Paul just detailed, the CDC website actually recommends Ivermectin for nursing home patients at 0.2 milligrams per kilogram for scabies up to seven times in one month. It must be a really dangerous drug if they're telling nursing home residents to use it up to seven times in one month. Right. It makes, it, none of this makes sense. Hey, Pierre, I think we need to address the Alcazar. Issue. Yeah, I was going to say, yes. do that, Paul. Yes. Yeah, so I don't know what happened here. So, you know, I think most people are aware of this, this unfortunate event. So it seems like the Guardian in London ran this um, article basically accusing Dr. Elgazar of scientific misconduct. Um, you know, what appears that he was, he was not given any pre-warning and his paper was retracted without his knowledge or without him giving an opportunity to respond. So, you know, I think the whole thing is very unfortunate and I think it will take time for the real truth to emerge. But I think what's important is that there is a mountain. There is a absolute mountain of evidence that is taller than Mount Everest supporting the use of ivermectin. You know, we're looking at epidemiological studies, experimental studies, clinical studies. So, and you know, when, when you exclude the Algazar study from all the meta-analyses, the results are still strikingly positive, strikingly positive. So even, you know, we don't know the truth about this study, but, you know, just assume the worst and let's remove this study, you know, from these meta-analysis in terms of <clears throat> time to treatment, in terms of viral clearance, in terms of mortality. Ivermectin remains a highly powerful drug, statistically significant. So, you know what? I think this is really an unfortunate event. Um, it's part of science. It's part of medicine. It's part of life. Uh, what the truth is will eventually emerge, but I don't think this is, you know, people should take this out of context. Um, and, um, you know, you have to look at the totality of the evidence. This is what we've been saying from the beginning. It's not one clinical trial. It's not one observational file. It's the totality of the evidence. It's the jury is 
they there's never a smoking gun or very rarely they're provided with the evidence. They have to weigh the evidence and decide what it is. And I'm just sorry to say there is overwhelming evidence to support the use of ivermectin. You know, they, as they, we know, could probably take out 10 trials, Paul, it wouldn't change a thing. Yeah. And, you know, to these naysayers, it is such a safe drug. You know, it, aspirin is probably results in more deaths than ivermectin. And it's just criminal. It's criminal that these people promote this evil misinformation, which is not based on the truth. So it's a safe drug and it's an effective drug. And I think that's where it begins and ends. And, you know, I'll say just, uh, I'll add to the Elgazar trial is that, you know, scientific fraud happens. I mean, it could be fraudulent. We don't know. I think we're going to reserve our, our, um, our judgment on that. Again, the, the key thing is what Paul says. You take away one trial, you don't do anything to the evidence base um, or the conclusions. But, um, you know, scientific fraud happens. And I also said earlier this week, so does disinformation tactics, uh, you know, by, uh, by financial interested corporations uh, also happen where they attack science that's inconvenient to them. And, and I, you know, again, I don't, I can't prove this, but I wouldn't be surprised if this attack on that trial was a tactic, was a disinformation tactic. That's also possible. It's also possible it could be fraud. I don't like that we haven't, he hasn't shared his source data. You know, if he claims that it's not his source data, well, then share it. I think you, you that's what you should do. And, and the fact that he hasn't done it bothers me greatly. But, you know, um, he does claim that it was retracted without an opinion, without an opportunity to respond. And that's from a preprint. Right. So it's not actually from a journal. It was from a preprint server that they retracted it and they did it based on the um, the Guardian article. That's number one. And then he claims that it's still under peer review somewhere. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see what it shows. But again, it really doesn't matter because the, the evidence is overwhelming without it. We have a lot of questions, fellas. OK, go ahead. what do you got, Betsy? <laughs> Well, we have a lot of people. Some of the questions you've answered before, but people people are still anxious about a certain things. But here's one. Maybe this is for Joyce. How do we contact the FLCCC on alternate online platforms? So Very important. Yeah, we we are uh, on Telegram and Odyssey. And what we'll do is put up a, a tomorrow. We'll put a graphic up on Twitter and on Facebook, telling you exactly how to get to us on both platforms. Um, there we are assured we will not be taken down. So watch for that coming tomorrow. And before we end, I'm going to tell you how to sign up to get on our email so that we'll be able to tell you even more. So after we answer the questions. Okay, so here's another question for the doctors. Shannon wants to know, what are your thoughts on ivermectin in the Delta variant? Because again, that's what everybody's hearing about and what everybody's scared about because it seems to be um, more dangerous than the original bug. Yes, yeah, so maybe let me answer that in silence here. So uh, it's an important question. As far as we know, ivermectin remains highly effective against all the variants. And this is because of its mode of action. It acts via a whole bunch of mechanisms, which really doesn't depend on binding to the spike protein directly. So there's no evidence, there's no evidence that ivermectin is resistant or will become resistant to the variants. 
And th there was a very good uh, laboratory study done in Canada, which clearly validated this observation. So, you know, obviously the implications because of the increasing lack of efficacy of neutralizing antibodies. So as far as we know, ivermectin remains highly effective against the variants. Pierre, would you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I like that you brought up the, the scientific mechanisms. I mean, we know it on the ground. I mean, there's no doctor that's written us <clears throat> saying that they're having more trouble with the Delta variant, number one. Number two, um, when you look at the states in India, with the, with they had some of the sharpest and tightest graphs of like literally Uttarakhand with the day that they announced through the entire state of Uttarakhand that they were going to distribute and they wanted their uh, everybody to take ivermectin, you saw this drop off that was huge. It started like within days of that announcement. And so, but you also saw it in other states. We clearly saw that that was all Delta variant running through in, in India. And so it's working there. Um, and, and so it's also working in other, other areas as well. And so, in fact, I covered the variants on a webinar, I don't know, two weeks ago. I went over the alpha, lambda, beta, delta variant, and I showed data showing that they're all susceptible. And, you know, and Paul tells you why. So that's good. Yeah, don't Rebecca, worry about the variants. They, they work. The drug works. Rebecca Smith wants to know, has the FDA or the WHO reviewed the latest research from the FLCCC, the BIRD, and other groups? You're going to love this one. Go ahead. No. So um, we presented our data to the NIH um, in January, and they shifted their recommendation from recommending against use outside trials um, to a neutral one. So that was the one place we had the audience. Um, I will say this. I'll go back to Andy Hill. Uh, right around that time, it was clear to us that Andy Hill had more data than we did. He had more and better data, which is to say he had a database of all 59 active randomized controlled trials around the world. He was in constant communication with biweekly meetings um, with all those investigators. You know, he was actually doing the work that I would want my health agencies to do in a pandemic. Right. Which is like get on that data, get on it fast, peer review it, you know, uh, validate it and get it out to the world quickly. And so he was doing like what I would, if I was a public health agency head, that's the kind of stuff that I'd want to send teams out doing. And so it was clear to us that he had better data than we did. Um, as far as if you just look at randomized controlled trials, and again, they made up new rules of evidence-based medicine now, right? Which is these guidelines, these guideline committees in these agencies, they, they oddly now discount all other data but randomized controlled trial data. And if you talk to Tess Laurie, she'll tell you she's worked on guideline committees her whole career. Number one, many, if not most guidelines, medical guidelines, international, national, are based not on randomized controlled trials. Oftentimes it's all observational. They might have one or two randomized controlled trials. So, so like people are not aware of just the, the, the derangement and absurdity of this. And so, so when you ask, like, has the WHO <laughs> asked us for our data? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't want to laugh at the questioner. It's a great question. I'm laughing at the answer. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, it, you know what Chris Martinson says, and I really like this statement he said, is that this is not a data argument. <clears throat> For months, I kept arguing on the data and I couldn't figure out why they're not listening to the good data. 
This is not about the data. That's why I'm saying there's regulatory capture going on because no matter no amount of data that you put into that building, you will not get a sensible recommendation coming out. There's something happening in those committees. And uh, I mean, it's not subtle. It's not subtle. Again, not, I'm getting that tattooed. I'm just going to say <laughs> not, subtle. not subtle. We have some good questions here about people who want to know how can we fight back. Tamika Morrow wants to know, can we report the pharmacists who refuse to fill our prescriptions to their boards? Yes. So that one's, so I wrote, actually, if you see my chat, I don't know if you can search for my chat, but I, I, I jumped in and I was writing about pharmacy stuff. Um, absolutely, you should. The other thing you do, if a pharmacist tells you not to, uh, not to, uh, that they won't fill it, Tell your doctor, this doctor, when I'm told that stuff, I go ballistic. And you guys know that I am on that phone in two seconds. And those pharmacists, they get an earful. They get an earful <laughs> and everyone has stood down. I am in their face and I literally will yell at them. Are you telling me you're coming in between me and my patient and how I want to treat them? You want to be responsible for their death? Are you kidding me here? And, and they all back down. But you need your doctor to do that. And I don't know if your doctor is uh, as... Uh, forceful as I am, let's say that. Yeah, I mean, basically, it's illegal for a pharmacy, pharmacist to do that. They're not qualified medical practitioners. Well, not in all states, though. That's the crazy part. Most oh. states, you're correct. But for instance, I just got word of uh, five actually fully vaccinated friends of a friend uh, in Texas, and they couldn't fill their ivermectin. And, and I, I Googled Texas because I was like, oh, is that one of the states? And that's one of the states pharmacists can just say no to anything. Most states, you need like an ethical exclusion, like um, or moral or whatever. Like if you don't believe in contraceptives, you can refuse a contraceptive. Most states, you actually have to prove that there's something wrong with description, like for a thousand milligrams of morphine or something like that, you know, some clearly dangerous or a drug interaction. But but some states actually will allow that pharmacist carte blanche, but not all, not all. Mark McConnell wants to know, do you have any thoughts as to the growing number of countries banning the import of ivermectin or what can be done regarding this? I think it's a brilliant public health strategy and they should be applauded. I'm sorry. Did I say that out loud? <laughs> <laughs> I think I, you I, want I'm to correct like, that. It'll be I mean, edited by somebody you know, I mean, and run. There's, there's only so many absurdities we can talk about in one hour. I mean, at some point I'm going to crack here. So, so the question was, what can we do about it? I mean, we do it. what we do. We, we put out public statements. We do press releases. Yeah. Uh, Joy, there's not a day that goes by that Joyce doesn't come to us with a new country that needs our help and advice. We give it. But again, if you think this is a data argument, if they're going so far as to ban the importation, do yeah. you think they're captured? Yeah. And I mean, you think our little FLCCC with our letterhead and our, you know, a piece of paper is going to do it. Um, you know, yeah. Anyway. Um, what about can ivermectin combat the symptoms of the side effects of the vaccines? This is for Kei Nishimura. So, so that's a really good yeah. question. So, you know, we don't have definitive data, but there seems to be very strong parallel between the so-called long hauler or post-COVID syndrome and the post-vaccination syndrome. We believe it's they're both due to the aberrant expression of spike protein 
and the inflammatory and clotting manifestations consequent to the spike protein. So we know that ivermectin is effective for the post-COVID syndrome. And we have really anecdotal reports from a whole host of practitioners that ivermectin is really useful for the um, post-vaccination syndrome. And you know, Pierre has a few personal, very personal anecdotes that he can attest to um, in terms of the efficacy of ivermectin for the yeah. uh, and it's, it's not, it's not, hey, Paul, do we have, do we have, I'm trying to think, do we have a protocol which, um, which addresses this? So, you know, we have to be careful. So we call it I recover. So it's recovering from COVID. And, you know, that's an encompassing term because it's real COVID and it's COVID oh. given to you. Yeah. So basically what we're saying is the I recover protocol, which is for long haul COVID um, also has efficacy. Uh, and this is, again, we don't have trials showing this, but we have lots of clinical experience and I have a widening, widening net of uh, clinicians that I uh, co communicate with who have uh, shared with me profound efficacy of ivermectin in post uh, vaccine syndromes, inflammatory syndromes, uh, and, and whatnot. And so, you know, the mechanisms of vaccine of ivermectin, right, there, there's many of them. And in the antiviral, the one that I like the best, because it just, it, it's the one that if proven, we don't have proof yet, we have a lot of in silico studies, you know what in silico means? In balls. Do you know what that uh, is? I've got no, no, no idea what an insilico is. Is it like, is it an implant? What is it? Yeah. No, I didn't yeah. know what it is. I, I had to look it up because I was like, what are in silico? So in silico means. What does um, it mean? Yeah, what does it mean? It means derived what? from computational modeling. So like they, they prove it with computers. And so the in silico studies show that ivermectin uh, purportedly has a very strong binding to the spike protein. And, and it's my belief that's probably the one of the most powerful mechanisms as an antiviral mechanism, because it explains to me why ivermectin is so profoundly potent in preventing disease. So if you take it right regularly, um, you really shouldn't get sick. It, it really prevents entry of the virus. And I think it's because it immediately binds uh, to the spike protein and prevents entry. Um, and then the other thing that also would explain why it's so effective in post-vaccine syndromes, right? So the vaccines, what do they do? They tell the body to make spike protein. And in some, we don't know what proportion of patients they are. We think it's quite large. Those databases are scary as hell. I mean, it's not in everybody, right? A lot of people tolerate the vaccines fine. I mean, if everybody were getting sick from the vaccines, I hopefully we would stop. But at this point, I'll believe anything. But but in certainly in 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 a not insignificant proportion of patients, they get very sick from these things. Um, you know, you're seeing the deaths. You're seeing tons of side effects. Uh, adverse events. And, and um, we're just, I'm just hearing really good reports of ivermectin uh, in patients with, uh, with symptoms after the, um, um, after the vaccine. In fact, um, Paul, you and I were on an international zoom today, the tests put together with clinicians and researchers across the world. It was like 
I don't know, six pages of Zoom uh, people. Um, and a lot of people are sharing their experiences with ivermectin post-vaccine syndromes. A lot of clinicians who are seeing them in their practice and and reporting some really profound responses. So, yeah. so that's I a long think, answer to that question. Yeah, I think, you know, people, you know, listening who do or know people who have post-vaccination syndrome should take it really seriously because we know it can progress and we know it can have really serious consequences. And we know this personally. So, you know, people who have, you know, brain fog and fatigue and malaise, it may be a progressive problem. So you don't want to wait. You know, I, I think you want to act swiftly and aggressively. And I think the iRecover protocol deals with that. You know, it's, it's you know, people dismiss this as people being, you know, nutcases and psychotic and, you know, this is real. This is real disease and it has to be taken really seriously. Folks, it's, uh, it's uh, 8.03 Eastern time. Uh, do you want to go on? We've got lots of questions or do you want to tell them to write clinical at flccc.net? What's, uh, what's your pleasure? If you got a couple more, we'll do a couple more, Paul. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah we can do a couple more. You can do a couple more. Okay. Uh, Julie Tay wants to know why is ivermectin contraindicated in pregnancy and lactating? When does the benefit outweigh the risk in clinical experience? And I will tell you that, you know, our pediatrician friend in Philadelphia has said that uh, she has used it. She's actually uh, on a 10 month old baby. Uh, it was through the lactation that the baby was given the protection of the ivermectin through the lactation. So I, I don't know about you, but that yeah. was, what yeah. so I'll give you yeah, my, yeah, answer. I had to hold off on that one. I'll give yeah. you my answer and then Pierre will give you his. So the problem is that there are really no safe drugs in pregnancy. Um, so the use of any medication in pregnancy is always very hazardous. And, you know, if, unfortunately there should be a bad fetal outcome they're always going to blame the medication so that's why you know people do not study drugs in pregnancy because it's a hazardous thing yeah. if you look in, in in animal models when you give very high doses very high doses of ivermectin to pregnant animals or mice or rats it has been associated with some congenital malformations but these are in high doses now, you know, in the human data is limited. We do know that the WHO is part of their mass distribution program. Do not restrict the use of ivermectin for prophylaxis or treatment of parasitic diseases. And women have been given ivermectin in pregnancy. Um, the uh, risk of adverse outcomes is somewhat unclear. So it's always a risk-benefit ratio. In everything in medicine and in life, you have to weigh the risks versus the benefits. So it's probably not a good idea to take it in the first trimester of pregnancy, unless obviously the mother's really sick. Okay. Um, and, you know, in the first, there is some excretion of the, or secretion of ivermectin in breast milk. So it's low dose. So one, one just has to be cautious. Do you want to add to that, Pierre? Yeah, no, I, I, I probably just to say the same thing that you said, I mean, you know, yeah, the animal data gave a lot of people pause, uh, but there's also been developing clinical experience that it's okay in pregnancy, but ultimately, you know, it's a confluence of factors that you would use, you know, the, um, uh, what trimester they're in, obviously third trimester is 
much safer. Um, and really the uh, health of, you know, the, the illness of the mom. So, so here's the thing that here's my rules for treating pregnant women, which is the best thing for the baby is the health of the mother. So if you keep the mom healthy and alive, that's probably the best thing for the baby. And so, uh, you know, it's a risk benefit. If a pregnant woman were to get ill or even anything beyond mild, or I would probably still pull the trigger early, I would treat. I might try to get away with a lower dose or a shorter duration. I, I, I don't know, or just really be very closely following to titrate to symptoms. Like, you know, as soon as they started getting better, maybe I would stop or, you know, I would just be a little bit more cautious, but I would not hope. I would not hold off treating uh, a pregnant woman um, with ivermectin. There's a couple of reasons why, right? We talk about the immunosuppression or immunodeficiency of pregnancy. Like pregnant women actually are kind of functionally immunodeficient, especially peripartum. Um, and they can get illnesses that immunodeficient people get. And so, um, you know, they might actually be a greater risk. I, I don't know that we have data on COVID and pregnancy. Do you know any data in COVID and pregnancy, Paul? Like if it's yeah, worse, it seems not, like, like it's not a good combination. Pregnancy not a good combination. Yeah, so do worse. Yeah, so I, I mean, I would. That's why I would have a quicker trigger to to treat. Yeah. But uh, but you're right, Paul. You know, like they don't they don't put pregnant women in trials, um, except for these vaccines. But never mind. I'm going to stop with the vaccines. Um, Another uh, one about a, a medical condition. Michael Stevens says, asks, do you recommend using ivermectin for patients with CFS? Uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. Yes. Okay. Wait, um, for ivermectin. Yeah. So again, you know, we, we, Paul and I, we try to be really clear when we're talking about trials data and significant amounts of trials data and good trials data. Um, and then when we, we, we are down to the level of case reports and case series. And, and for me, the chronic fatigue syndrome or post myalgic and, you know, uh, uh, you know, chronic EBV and chronic Lyme, um, there, there's been numerous case reports over years uh, that ivermectin has been very helpful there. And you so, know, as we said, it's a safe, it's a cheap drug. You know, people yeah, try it. Condition. What have you got to lose? And, what have you got to lose? You can just get better. That's all that can happen. And I'll tell the audience, if, if anyone has experience, like we like getting testimonials. It adds to our clinical uh, acumen and, and our clinical knowledge base, but because I I was keeping long hauler testimonials for a while, I just stopped because I I kind of had enough. But um, some of them uh, actually were really interesting. Is I got a couple of chronic fatigue syndrome uh, testimonials, and 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 so um, uh, if you have any more, send them to me. Or if someone with chronic fatigue tries it and, and derives a benefit, let us know. Okay, you're gonna. There's a question that Joyce is gonna love. Linda Pinty wants to know what is going on in Japan. Why aren't they using the drug from their own soil? <laughs> so, apparently, yeah. apparently, Satoshi Omura is not credible. I guess. Um, yeah, I, that's the thing. Satoshi Omura went before the parliament uh, because a, a bill was introduced uh, in front of the parliament to uh, begin widespread distribution of ivermectin. And I, as far as I understand, the bill languished. I don't know 100%, but that's what I think, the bill languished. Anyway, he argued for ivermectin uh, in advance of the Olympic Games. And the video of him 
making and pleading his case for ivermectin, this Nobel uh, winning developer of ivermectin, this brilliant scientist got uh, taken down on Twitter and on YouTube. He was censored. I mean, just get your head around that. Satoshi Amora was censored. So they didn't, we actually, this, uh, the doctors wrote a letter to the uh, uh, head of the Japanese Olympic Committee. And we, from what we understand, our letter prompted the bill to go to the parliament in Japan, where apparently it languished. And now we, you know, we're not in a good situation in Japan for whatever reason. We have another one here. Ron Bauman has given a couple of questions here. One was asked, answered last week, which was, should ivermectin be taken on an empty stomach or with food? The answer is, with food, ignore the label. Yeah, <laughs> Dr. The, Dr. Empty stomach is in a lot of drug inserts. Um, and it's, I don't know, it's based on old data, I guess, when they were testing the drug. I don't know what it's from, but the more recent data, and this is why ours says with food, is that there was a paper that showed uh, when you take it with or after a meal, um, you know, during active digestion, your uh, ther- the levels, uh, serum and tissue levels are much higher. So uh, we advocate for giving it with food. But, yeah. but you are going to see that... Um, uh, you're going to see uh, it conflict with a lot of the like pharmacists will tell you to take it on an empty stomach. We'll tell you to take it with food, with food. You can and decide who's right. Ron also asks, can we stop but resume, I guess, taking ivermectin if we feel we have been exposed to a high risk of COVID? So there's no reason that you can take it and stop it and retake it. Yeah. So. You know, when I'm in a high-risk situation, like I go to Pierre's house, I think <laughs> I'm because I don't want to get COVID. So there's no reason that... You're the safest household in the world, Paul. There's no reason that you can't take it when you think you're at a high risk of exposure. By the way, Paul, since you left, things are so much calmer around here. <laughs> it's just less stress. Parasites are dead. And by the way, to the audience, Paul really stayed forever. He was here every day. All he wanted to do was float in the pool, and uh, and it was good. And then he, when it rained, he cried, and it was the whole thing was just much. Was I think this much. is probably a good question to end on because Bruce Felber wants to know: um, Are there any precautions when taking um, ivermectin with benzodiazepines or alcohol? while on ivermectin. Oh. Yeah, so maybe I'll answer that first. You know, my, my, my attitude has somewhat changed to both alcohol and benzos. So, you know, we used to think that taking a glass of wine at night was a good thing. So generally alcohol is bad. It's not a good thing to do. So, you know, you shouldn't be drinking. You know, if you take a drink, we can't recommend you take it with, with ivermectin. And you know the same. Now, guys. <laughs> Sorry about right. that. Right. <laughs> you know what? I mean, just uh, whatever. And benzos. You know, I think benzos are so badly abused in our society. Is He's that- not answering the question. What is he doing? Yeah. So no. Just <laughs> yeah. You can. I mean, you can take ivermectin with whatever the heck you want to take it with. I mean, but Paul, Wikipedia be- tells you not to. 
Yeah, like you believe Wikipedia is a reputable source of all medical information. Yeah. And by the way, you guys know, I think we cut, did I cover so, that? So actually, let me answer that. There actually was a study which was done. So anything you can study, they looked at the use of alcohol in patients being treated with parasitic diseases and ivermectin. And yes, you can take alcohol with ivermectin, but it's not something that we would recommend. That oh, you do. Paul. Oh, come on, grow up here. Yeah. <laughs> Also, somebody wants uh, just a clarification on your answer before about whether or not you can start and stop ivermectin. So the answer, yes. Oh, right. so okay. wait, hold on. The question was the question was a phrased a little odd. Could you just repeat the question? Because it was, it you re, re, repeat the question, Betsy. It was something about can you, if you've been, can you stop, uh -huh. uh, but resume, if you feel you've been exposed to a high risk of COVID. Yes, that's what I said, Pete. Can't you understand? So you stop it. Yeah, apparently our colleagues here didn't think that you answered the question that great. So I'm going to take over on this one because okay. you failed. You failed, Paul. Okay, okay. This thing is kind of cool on the sleeve, this little yeah. strap. I like yeah. this thing. Yeah, very nice. Anyway, all right, we got to get back to the question. We're going to be serious here. Um, my sense, the, there's two ways in which I under, understand that question. One is because the starting and stopping is one issue. I, I, let's just let's just say if you've been exposed, have a high risk exposure to COVID, you should take ivermectin, right? That is our post exposure prophylaxis uh, protocol that you'll find on eye mask, right? So we say two doses, uh, you know, 48 hours apart, uh, take immediately upon you recognizing you've been exposed. Um, the most common exposure is when someone in the house gets COVID, right? So everybody in the household should take two doses at that point. Um, but you might have gone to a party or visited a friend who then falls ill with COVID, in which case you should take the two doses. So that's that's just post-exposure prophylaxis. The starting and stopping, I don't like maybe they were on it for a while, then stopped and then had an exposure. Answer is the same. Take the two doses. If you've had a high risk exposure, just take the two doses. You know, and Paul, what Paul does is he takes it before he goes into high risk situation because all he's doing is reading medical papers in his office all day long. And every like month he goes out of his office. And so when he does or he comes to my house, um, he's not invited anymore, by the way. Um, actually, no, no. My wife wants him back. She she misses him. Yeah. Um, she liked having him around, Paul. So so you're invited. Thanks. Um, <laughs> uh, only with ivermectin, though. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, it's quarter after. What do you say? Yeah, let's call it. I think that's good. We we're, we'll be apparently we'll be back next week. So let's do and, it again. Uh, let's do yeah. it again. We we'll get every we'll try to get everybody. And and I think some people who feel a sense of urgency, we we do have Christina. Uh, Maros does answer some questions uh, that you and she can occasionally reach you at clinical, and right? You're smarter than P and I combined. So you know. she really is. She's okay, really clinical good. at flccc.net is hey, helpful. Can I, can I make a pitch? I'm going to make a, a pitch for a donation here. I'll tell you why. Please. I want to yeah. be specific. I'm going to use Christina as an example, though she's only one person that works for us, but. Our budget right now is we, we're, we're looking at our budget. We have increasing costs. We're actually uh, adding to our organization as we speak. And I think maybe next week I'd like to introduce our team members. But Christina is one of the more recent additions. And 
we put her on a diet of hours. I mean, we restricted her hours because we're not quite sure what our money situation is yet. Um, uh, and we really have a global impact. So I, I just got to tell you guys, you're talking about an organization that literally has a global reach. We are trying to help many countries, um, many organizations. We, we ally with a lot of colleagues around the world. We're constantly working. We're all exhausted. Um, and we're adding to our team. And I got to tell you, um, Christina does phenomenal work. And I, I don't want to talk, I don't want to ignore everybody else who does phenomenal. I'm just using Christina because she's the one that we've added. She's helped Paul in my life immeasurably because she's the one who's actually taken on the clinical work. So it's all floating a little bit, Paul, because Paul and I are answering emails and questions that we still do individual stuff. Paul is, is still trying to answer individual emails to him. But now that we have Christina, she helps us and she really helps you guys. And so um, if you see fit to, to help this organization out, um, you know, think, think of just, just right there. That would be one thing that, uh, that we could do is we can get Christina working even more. I mean, she literally has her work piles up, but we told her to hold off because we were, we're working on our budget. So could you help our budget out so we can unleash Christina and, uh, and, and she can help save the world as well? So anyway, that's my pitch. Right, Paul? Fabulous. And, and I, I just a couple things I need to tell you uh, before we wrap it up here. Uh, if we didn't get to your question, OK, next week we'll be back. These guys are good. We'll, we'll get more. And then they've got Christina, 7 p.m. Eastern time, though, next Wednesday night. And in the meantime, if you want to keep up with us, remember, if you can't find us on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, check us out on Telegram. Um, videos are now going up on Odyssey. Uh, we're moving all these things over, but we also have the website, flccc.net, and there are changes every day. There's new stuff going up. We're rearranging things to try to keep it with a lot more information and make it easier for you to find. But here's the other thing. One other important thing, because of the attacks that you've heard about, the misinformation that is being declared against us and the possibility that we could lose our social media, which is one of the main ways that we contact you and that you hear from us every day. We would like to have your email addresses, not just the one that you signed up here to get on this Zoom webinar, but we'd like to have them in our email list. Because we're a small staff, we don't have a giant corporation that can pull all these lists together. Please just do us a favor. You can click on the description below or in the banner that pops up here. Click on that link, fill out a little form, give us your email address so that we can get you on our email list. That way, if we get deplatformed from social media, we will be able to reach you and to tell you where we are and to give you the latest information. This, this is just kind of an important backup for us. That is it. Uh, thank you all for watching. Thank you again for those donations. It helps us get the tech. It helps us get the message out. It helps us pay for people like Christina who answer your questions along with these good doctors who are writing stuff and answering calls. Thank you so much. Stay with us. Help us save lives. That's what you're doing. Stay well, and we'll see Thanks, you guys. next week. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye.